Thanks for listening to Bezier. Bezier is sponsored by Superhigh, online courses for code, design, and product management. Superhigh's courses can be done in your own home at your own pace. I've been a Superhigh student since 2017 and have gone from being a designer feeling alienated by the should designers code discourse to building my own sites and now even selling web design services. My favorite part of Superhigh is the community of learners. As a Superhigh student, you're added to this huge community of all the other Superhigh students. It's filled with inspiring people from all over the world in all different places in their careers. I've gotten work there, I found podcast guests there, and even made in-person friends, all because of Superhigh. It's easy to get started. There's an online code editor. You can do it on your own schedule. There's built-in community of learners. It's got everything you need. Start learning to code, design, or product manage today at superhigh.com. I'd like to have my guests introduce themselves. Could you share a bit about yourself? First and foremost, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm a fan of the show. I'm excited to chat with you. My name's Ash Oliver. I go by he, him pronouns. I'm a trans designer and uh, self-described fledgling designer. I got into the design space, not actually by design, I think. I started my career, as we were just chatting, at Apple way back in the day and found my way into tech and then into the startup world and largely have worked on revenue and growth teams in building businesses and have just been very much obsessed with everything design. So have been working my way into that kind of career. And that's a little bit uh, from the top level. (laughs) What about outside of work? What do you do other than design? Yeah, I mean, I'm a a huge uh, reader. I have piles and piles of books around me kind of at all times. I'm usually found like hanging out in bookstores or exploring new bookstores around and not so much in COVID times. I do a lot of travel. I'm a Again, not necessarily something very much in COVID era, but yeah, huge traveler. I do a bit of writing. So yeah, those are some of the things that occupy my time outside of work. I think I know what you mean by fledgling designer, but maybe you could explain a little bit more about your intention about it. I think probably a few years ago when I first started to edge my way into the design world and, and community, I did a lot of you know, going to, to networking events and conferences and just trying to immerse myself in, in that world and you know meet people. Um, and I just felt very you know, impostered, uh, you know, by the whole endeavor. Um, I, you know, like I said, was largely on the the growth and, and revenue side of, of startups. So when people would ask, oh, what do you do? I didn't have the cute designer title. And a lot of folks didn't necessarily see the connection between working on like the sales or revenue side to how that, you know, relates back to design. And so I felt really uncomfortable and intimidated. And, you know, when you look up to a lot of folks and you're on design Twitter and, and things, it's it's hard to necessarily, you know, break out and kind of feel confident in yourself. So I still hold on to that, even though I'm, I'm definitely a a lot further down my path than a few years ago. But I like to kind of keep it, at least for now, as, as kind of a nod to where I've come from and to you know other folks that maybe don't feel so senior in the world just yet. So yeah, I, I like it. <laughs> Do you feel like there's a clear delineation between fledgling designer and the next step? Like, is there a moment that you know that you'll not be a fledgling designer anymore? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, 
I kind of go back and forth about that because I think of, at least for myself, I like to consider myself like a a constant learner. So I would like to say that there's a part of me that will always be fledgling in in some capacity. And I want to honor that part. It's also really hard for me as a as a creative and just as, you know, kind of my personal makeup to start new things when I'm not immediately excellent at it. And so being fledgling pays homage to the fact that like you can jump from the nest and, and, and stumble. And that's a part of the process in every kind of endeavor. And so I, I hope to incorporate that in my life in an, an evergreen way. I like that. It it reminds me of the like learning mindset where people talk about being a learner and always acting as a student. Yeah, it's definitely part of my path too, because like I said, I'm uh, an obsessive reader, obsessive researcher. When I'm interested in something, I just throw myself down the rabbit hole, um, so to speak. And I like that obsessive tendency in me. I like being able to research something to its end and kind of find out where it pulls me. And getting into design has largely been facilitated by my own self-study, which I think is another thing in the early days where I felt like every job post I would see, even for junior design roles, were wanting five years of experience or having worked on these you know big projects. And so it, again, just kind of put this pressure or like pedestal that I didn't feel like that was going to attain, especially not having gone to notable design school, you know, with a, a bachelor in, in human-centered design or something like that. So I, I actually, while I could go off on a tangent about learning and do you go and get a, a degree or self-study or the combination of the two, I personally, looking back in hindsight, really like how my path has has unfolded because it's been a, a combination of the two. Structured learning in more of the academia, more traditional sense, as well as just a, a ton of self-study. And it's manifested some unique perspectives and, and findings. So it's been good. Yeah. As part of your like process of self-study, do you have advice for somebody else that's trying to learn design by themselves or resources that you love that you always go to? Yeah, I would definitely say, and this this probably answers a few things in regards to what can you do as more of a, a junior person or someone just entering into the space. I would say make it your craft and just immerse yourself as much as possible. Find the books that that stand out to you. Find the people that stand out to you. Just follow what they follow. You know, reach out, try to make connections, really just surround yourself as much as possible because the more of your surroundings that are kind of made up of those things, the more serendipitous pathways you'll find and, and stumble into. And I think when you're so hung up on attaining something, it it removes the the creative, you know, fumbling into something. And I think when you're, you know, new at something and you're trying to uncover stuff, it, it get into that more of that exploratory kind of play mode. And I think it relieves some of that tension and also manifests some of the, some of the most interesting things that you'll, you'll find. So that would be my recommendation. Yeah. I love that. It ties a little bit into that learning mindset we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you gave us a little taste of, you did self-study, some academia, you gave us a little bit of your background. Maybe you could walk us through a little bit of your career path to what you're doing today. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm really excited. As I mentioned, I, I worked largely at, in, in startups and it, it became really apparent to me like with with my obsession and, and passion for design that I wanted to make a, a career switch 
more solidly from the revenue and growth side to to product design. And as you can imagine, not every you know business necessarily sees that correlation or has the capacity necessarily to help you facilitate that kind of transition. And so uh, it was a couple of years ago that that I was really oh, there's my dog Fern <laughs> that I was really focused on uh, getting into the design space. And I saw an opportunity to join UX Pin, which is what I would call maybe the underdog design tool of the design world. And it was a great marriage because it allowed me to join that startup from all of my experience on more of that, that growth side, but be talking to designers every day and bring in my passion and what I had already learned about being able to talk about the design practice at companies. That really helped me get more solidly into the space and, and build more of those connections. And then I just recently joined Maze Design, which is a, a rapid testing platform more for you know usability testing and discovery testing in the research space. It's incredibly exciting to to be part of that team and so i'm actually a design advocate there and i'm really excited about what the next year holds for not just that role but for us as a company and, and what we're doing for the design space so yeah that's kind of that's my day job but i'm also working on this kind of creative side project called friends for good uh, or ffg for for short it's very much in the incubation state at the moment but it's essentially a, a creative co-op. It's a way for people who like to work together to put their skills and talents uh, together for good, for cool projects that they want to self-facilitate, as well as organizations that could use design or, or design-related skills that maybe don't have the access. So yeah, it's friends working together. That's basically the premise. <laughs> well, first off, congrats on the job at Maze. I think Maze is a great uh, company and product. Thank you. I worked as a designer advocate at Figma, so I, I know the role pretty well myself, but maybe for people that don't fully understand it, you could explain what a designer advocate is. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I actually didn't didn't realize that you had been a... a <laughs> this is so funny because um, <laughs> before this call, we, we talked about how overlapping our, our paths have been. It's, it's very quite, quite strange and I love it. Yeah. So as far as the, the design advocate role, um, you know, it, it's kind of a combination of, of three things in my mind, you know, the, the community and, you know, really understanding your not just user base uh, and, and folks that, that use or, or work within Maze, but the, the community writ large, you know, and kind of how do you lift that up and really know and understand them, but also kind of act as the voice for them. And that can, you know, be, again, manifested in a lot of different directions. The second thing is, you know, obviously being a, a conduit into Maze. Um, so, you know, more of that voice piece of being able to represent that community and, and ultimately have that, that body have a seat at the table in the organization. So, you know, that's kind of more the internal perspective. And then, you know, thirdly is just being able to open up new creative opportunities around, you know, like what the future holds. Like I'm really excited about the the potential in which we're not just talking about a one-to-one -one relationship between, 
you know, like Figma and the user or Maze and the user, but also like what does Maze as a company and product along with its user base really do for the larger world? And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated about, um, you know, what the potential for, for a design advocate role looks like, but largely, um, you know, I'd say it's your point person for more of the voice in, in the company and the voice in the community. I do want to get more indifference for good, but before we switch to that, what advice would you have for someone that wants to be a designer advocate or is considering that now that they've learned about it as part of their career path? I would say, you know, again, like look to, you know, maybe some of the folks that have already been doing that and have kind of found their their path and voice. I think that's that's still something that I'm very much doing, looking to, you know, like Joy Banks and and yourself and and folks that are very much present in the design world and and what are they talking about? What are the things that are important to them? What's resonating? And I, I really look at that from a, a very genuine perspective, like not from the, you know, capitalistic mindset of what's important so that we can monetize that, but what is important because we're all part of this thing and we should be having, you know, broader conversations about what's important to us as an industry, as a community, as folks that do this work and what that means for for the bigger picture. So I would say look to the folks that have already, you know, kind of been on this path and and see what what resonates with them. They're good leaders to follow. So friends for good. I think you use the word co-op to describe what does that look like to you in practice? Is it similar to a design agency, but a bunch of independent people? Or is it structured in a different way? And how does that sort of influence the work that you do? Yeah, this kind of the original underpinnings of it happened because I was working at a previous startup and I had just so much exposure to incredibly brilliant people that were so passionate and had so many, you know, unique interests of their own and diverse experiences, which is also incredibly important to me, especially as a trans guy myself, you know, just thinking about representation and the marginalized communities that maybe don't have as much exposure in like the startup world or the tech community or design. And so anyway, we, you know, I, I made really close friends at this startup and we, a bunch of us ended up moving on to other opportunities and found our own kind of Slack group after the fact, because it was so much a part of our daily routine to be you know talking with each other and, and we missed it. So when we you know, kind of found ourselves back in this like external Slack group just to kind of stay connected. A bunch of us were talking about some side projects that we were working on and we loved working with each other when we worked at that company. And that's kind of what led to the thought of we could spin up our own projects and just because we love to work together and because we have so many diversified ex- skill sets and experiences, this could really be used for something awesome. So it, it's model intentionally is not to create money. This would be like someone's side hustle, but in a friends group kind of setting. So the whole premise is really like a democratized, more shared model that we build it together, we invest in it together, we get out of it what we all put into it. And so it's more of a resourcing of 
contributing time instead of money. And what we see as an output is more of like the fulfillment that we get in working together and the projects that we get to work on. And obviously, you know, what that does for, for any kind of client relationship or, or project that we want to, to take on. So yeah, it's very much more of a, you know, kind of pooled resources, collaborative co-op experience. <laughs> Are you accepting new members? Yeah, so we are accepting new members. And the idea is to kind of always be accepting new members. Folks have different types of uh, things come up in their lives. There might be a time in which you, you, you just can't dedicate the kind of time commitment that it would require in order to be part, be a, be a founding member of, of the co-op. So the premise is, is that you can come in and out, but your dedication to the, the group and the, the project is on more of a, a time-blocked type of opportunity. So yeah, I, I would love to share more with, with anyone who's interested in it. It's definitely in the very beginning stages and I'm excited to see what form and shape it takes. I love passionate side projects and I know from personal experience that sometimes they come out of this really strong idea and passion, but there's not necessarily a really large picture of what it's going to become or as it develops, it sort of evolves and grows. I'm curious if you have a sense of what 10 years from now looks like. Oh man. Yeah. I, I really hope that in 10 years, it still looks like a bunch of friends to use kind of a tech analogy, like in a garage, you know, being really scrappy and like I said, democratized in the sense that we have structure and clear goals and operations, but it hasn't been, you know, so constructed maybe in the way that the the traditional maybe agency model, you know, kind of lends itself to. I hope that it's still kind of punk, <laughs> you know, to kind of throw it in that way. It just a little bit more like stays more grassroots and the structure gets out of the way so that the it's there to support us, but the the creativity and uh, and the people are always still just at the, the helm of it. So I hope that in 10 years, um, you know, we still have some of the original people that helped to, to build this in the very beginning. And I hope that we can look back over 10 years of a uh, really uh, incredible body of work that's hopefully done some good in the world. I love that. I think it's a really good sales pitch. So I will make sure that we put away in the show notes for people to try and get involved. Thank you. appreciate that. Yeah. Do you have any advice for more senior people in the design industry? Yeah, yeah, I would say don't forget about the junior designers. <laughs> you know, I'm not a not a senior person myself, so that's the most prominent thing that that comes to mind, but you know, like I said, like seeing I think even Pablo Stanley uh just did a, a, a cute little skit on LinkedIn about like, you know, the junior designer and going through all of the kind of like bullet points of what the job rec requires and it's it's funny, it's a parody because that is, you know, what happens. Like you're someone who's just starting out and maybe you have, you know, some school behind you but not too many projects or a little bit of projects but, you know, not necessarily the degree or, you know, it, it's it's hard to break into and I think that companies are right in the sense that that they need to have some level of uh, assurance in, in the types of, of talent and skills that they're bringing onto the team. But I think we've just got so indoctrinated around what we're looking for and it ends up 
missing out on some of the the beautiful talent and and fresh eyes that are coming into uh, the space if if we're only looking at how many years of experience have you have you got behind you so i'd say you know senior designers look at how you can construct your teams with you know some junior people and i think there's some really great opportunity there if you're able to do so i think that's really important advice and i hope uh, i hope people are listening <laughs> So as it relates to our industry, what are your tips or thoughts around fighting and resisting the white supremacy, the patriarchy, the transphobia, the ableism, the racism, all the other bigotries that we unfortunately have to work around? Mm. Yeah, gosh, it's always heavy on my heart, you know, and and obviously so much more as as 2020 literally is proclaiming, you know, it's 2020 vision. These things are are very much in our in our focus. And I, I definitely don't claim to have all the answers. I like to to think of myself as a very studious and well-read person. So my way of of trying to combat these things is to be as as well read and as studied as possible not in the ivory tower you know kind of academia way but in the you know again immersing myself in who who is in my community who who's making up you know the sound bites of experiences that i come in, into exposure to like what have i read that has you know provided a different lens or view into someone's lived experience that's different than mine. You know, I, I think a lot of folks get like kind of um, clammed up about it because it's it's a heavy topic. Nobody has a silver bullet <laughs> answer and it makes folks uncomfortable. Um, they don't want to, you know, be called out. And so there can be this natural kind of resistance. And I think that the first piece is to, you know, put that ego aside to be okay and understanding that you're trying to learn, you're trying to, to be a better citizen in the world. And I think the more that you can kind of surround yourself with different perspectives and, and voices and really take a, an active listening role, the better you'll be for it. And so I'd, I'd tell people to, again, like follow the folks that are talking about these things and, and tune in. <laughs> you mentioned people trying to do better and being uncomfortable. What do you think we should do about people that aren't trying and are very comfortable? Mm. <laughs> yeah, goodness. Well, I think there's, so for a little astrology bit on me, I'm, uh, I'm an Aries and Capricorn uh, moon, uh, Aries sun. So I've got lit the double horns. So I think uh, one of my, one of my mugs says coming in hot. Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of true, true to who I am. So I do think that like these types of things sometimes can like well up a lot of that fire in me and it, it can kind of stoke that, you know, maybe confrontation and it, it's never ever like manifested itself in some big argument but i can feel it inside of me when when you come into contact with people who are very clearly tuned out comfortable not thinking about these things and i i try to soften it as much as i can not for them but for me and and know that i will probably be more likely to get my perspective and my message across if I go about it in a more creative way than just, you know, kind of standing on a my soapbox and, and you know, preaching down at them. I don't think anybody's going to listen to that. For example, like when I'm 
in a meeting space and there I look around the room and it's mostly white people and we're in tech and we're you know in this beautiful building in in downtown Seattle and I'm I'm thinking like okay this, this is this is the picture-esque poster child of the tech world like what am I doing here to you know kind of break that up I think using my voice to you know try to insert that into those conversations into those people's minds helps to just move the needle a little bit. So, you know, don't don't stay silent about it, but think about how your message would maybe be best delivered. Yeah, I think that's really important for people that aren't currently thinking about that of like looking the room that you're sitting in, like that's a great place to start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd say even I think one of the experiences that's just so prominent in my life is obviously transitioning, being a a former uh, woman in tech, <laughs> uh, you know, I have had the gamut of experiences where, you know, I've I was the the youngest product expert for Apple in the country at the time, and I'd have you know white men come come up to me and completely to my face tell me, you know, I I'm not going to take you know tech advice from from a girl. And now I'm, you know, on the other side, I'm, I'm walking amongst the world as, as perceivingly, uh, you know, as a man. And it's it that that shakes things up in a, in a lot of different ways. And so I try to stay aware of how much airtime is my voice taking up? How much airtime is, you know, the colleagues in the room that are white men taking up and looking towards, you know, trying to deliberately like give the folks a little bit more of a platform, you know, and, and allow that opening for them, maybe if it's not happening so much naturally, or if they're not maybe breaking that open, that, that could be exhausting to try to like make your voice heard all the time, especially if you're being talked over or, you know, it's not naturally an opening uh, at, in, in the room. So I try to, I try to incorporate that as much as possible. Yeah, and I think we've talked on this show before in the past about the idea of it's the privileged group or the ones that need to solve the problem need, that they are creating. And so as like a white man in a meeting, it is important to see who's got the share of voice and take action about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there will always be folks in the, the, the marginalized communities that will speak on their on their behalf and 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 be an active participant but it it shouldn't the onus shouldn't be left at, at their feet like we should be taking ownership of of trying to make the change that we want to see um and i think the the most privileged folks in the room have the biggest opportunity to to start that so you mentioned a love of books mm. what is a book that everyone should read yeah one uh, one that i picked out that i have lovingly worn kind of to bits is uh, is Citizen Designer. It's uh, Perspectives on Design Responsibility. Um, it's by Stephen Heller and Veronique Vienne, I think is, is how you pronounce uh, the last name. I mean, true to form, Steve, Steve Heller in the sense that, you know, it's just so well articulated. And to me, it, it, it's like, on the ground floor, it's it's not this like citizen designer where it's like the sparkles and the you know you're in the nebulous. You're like, what does this even mean? You know what I mean? Like this is practical insights, I think. And I think if if you're a designer or hell, I mean, you're a citizen of the world. Uh, I think everybody uh, should should read it. <laughs> I have not heard of this book, so I'm very excited about your recommendation. Oh, Thank great! You. Yeah, anytime. Added to my list. <laughs> yeah. 
What about people? Is there someone that you think everyone should know about? Yeah, I definitely have like such such fond feelings for Debbie Millen. You've probably heard of her. Uh, she's you know kind of a giant in in the design world, but. I I just adore her as a as a person who I have had the privilege to meet and can say that you know it's not that celebrity moment when you meet your you know kind of idol and then you're like oh shit they're they're not who I thought they were like no Debbie is everything that you see and more and when I was first like coming into the design space I I stumbled upon her podcast Design Matters and she was a real maximizer for me like she her podcast beyond being absolutely genius and and so well done the exposure to other designers and creatives and artists that she was the conduit to was i mean just a treasure trove for me like i i i listened to her podcast constantly and yeah i mean it just opened up a, a whole new world into other folks that i've you know now come to to follow or or know and so yeah i think if if you don't know of Debbie Millman, um, or if you've maybe, you know, heard of her, but haven't explored all of the myriad of things that she's been a part of, I would say, you know, uh, definitely, definitely look into it. Fantastic recommendation. I think if you haven't heard of Debbie Millman, link to her Twitter in the uh, show notes. And if you are listening to this podcast and don't listen to Design Matters, like that's a really good one to subscribe to. Totally. So I believe everyone should get paid for their time. So we take the profits from this show and we split them across our guests. Are there other ways that our listeners could support you? That's I love that you do this. This is um, it's such a such a great thing that you're doing in, in the work that you're doing and also through the through the podcast. So there's not necessarily for for me in particular, but something that definitely if you're hearing this now and and you're thinking about ways that you can contribute, there's Trans Santa. This is obviously the holiday season uh, right now, and I believe it's it's being led by India Moore and some other folks. But basically, this is an opportunity for trans kids to receive some some things on their wish list that would really brighten their day. And so I would defer uh, anyone that would look to maybe support me uh, to maybe go find Trans Santa and, and see if they can you know gift something to to a, a trans youth. What a great initiative. Absolutely will support. Definitely put that in the show notes as oh, well. Oh, thank you. So I know you from your Twitter account. I love your Twitter account. Oh, thanks. Is that a good place for people to find you? Are there other places you want people to find you as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, I am Ash, A-S-H underscore Oliver, O-L-I-V-E-R. So three R's uh, actually in my my Twitter handle. Same on Instagram. You can find me, Ash Oliver, on, on LinkedIn. Probably, yeah, best places to find me would be Twitter, Twitter and Instagram. So... Yeah, we'd love. I'm I'm very open book, and would love to to chat with anyone that's that's uh, listened to this episode. I would love that. Ash, I had such a great time talking with you. Thank you so much for being on Bezier. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up? Well, it's just been it's been an honor to be here. Thank you so much for for having me. Appreciate the conversation, and I love how serendipitous life is, and how you kind of you know. Uh, meet people. So yeah, I would just say, you know, keep doing, keep doing good out there, y'all. Even when it feels hard, even good for yourself is, is good in the world that you can do. So yeah, don't forget to take care of yourself. 
Bezier is a design interview podcast amplifying voices in our creative communities that don't already have large platforms and aren't working at big five tech companies. We focus on finding guests from all over the world and representative of as many of us as possible. If you have a great guest idea for Bezier, please email us at inquiry at zoct.studio. That's I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at Z-A-C-H-T dot studio.